to Even Darker. I'm so glad you're here. Having always been fascinated by fairy tales, mythical creatures, mythology, folk tales, and legends, I wanted to create a podcast about these exact stories. In each episode, Chris Gordon, Jay Stinnett, or Damian Drake will tell us a story. Then I, Regina Drake, will review the points of the story I found most interesting, shocking, or downright unforgivable. Allow me to show you the origins of things even darker. Take heed, these are in the original early content, not the Big Mouse versions. No shade on him, but this is not for the young. Excited to announce our edition of Mythical Moments of Mythology with Karen Ellinger. Finally, we are going to get a dose of mythology. My favorite. For our 27th episode, we will start with a fairy tale called King Bluebeard comes to us from Germany. The author, Ernst Mayer, the year 1852. And now for our story. King Bluebeard. Next to a great forest, there lived an old man who had three sons and two daughters. Once they were sitting together thinking of nothing when a splendid carriage suddenly drove up and stopped in front of their house. A dignified gentleman climbed from the carriage, entered the house, and engaged the father and his daughters in conversation. Because he was especially like the youngest one, he asked the father if he would not give her to him to be his wife. This seemed to the father to be a good marriage, and he had long desired to see his daughters taken care of while he was still alive. However, the daughter could not bring herself to say yes, for the strange knight had an entirely blue beard, which caused her to shudder with fear whenever she looked at him. She went to her brothers, who were valiant knights, and asked them for advice. The brothers thought that she should accept Bluebeard, and they gave her a little whistle, saying, If you are ever threatened, just blow on this whistle, and we will come to your aid. Thus she left herself to be talked into becoming the strange man's wife, but she did arrange for her sisters to accompany her when King Bluebeard took her to the castle. When the young wife arrived there, there was a great joy throughout the entire castle and King Bluebeard was very happy as well. This continued for four weeks, and then he said that he was going on a journey. He turned all the keys of the castle over to his wife, saying, You may go anywhere in the castle, unlock everything, and look at anything you want to, except for one door, to which this little golden key belongs. If you value your life, you are not allowed to open it. Oh no, 
she said, adding that she surely would not open that door. But after the king had been away for a while, she could not find no rest for constantly thinking about what there might be in the forbidden chamber. She was just about to unlock it when her sister approached her and held her back. However, on the morning of the fourth day, she could no longer resist the temptation, and taking the key, she secretly crept into the room, stuck the key into the lock, and opened the door. Horrified, she saw the entire room filled with corpses, all of them women. She wanted to slam the door shut immediately, but the key fell out and onto a bloody pool. She quickly picked it up, and she was stained with blood and however much she rubbed and cleaned it, the stains would not go away. With fear, trembling, she went to her sisters. When King Bluebeard finally returned from his journey, he immediately asked for the golden key. Seeing the blood stains on it, he said, Wife, did you not heed my warning? Your hour has now struck. Prepare yourself to die, for you have been in the forbidden room. Crying, she went to her sisters who lived upstairs in the castle. While she was bemoaning her fate to her, the sister thought of the whistle that she had received from her brothers and said, Give me that whistle. I shall send a signal to our brothers. Perhaps they will be able to help. And she blew the whistle three times, ensuing a bright sound that rang through the woods. An hour later, they heard Bluebeard rustling up the stairs to get his wife and slaughter her. Oh, God. Oh, God, she cried out. Aren't my brothers coming? She rushed to the door and locked it. Then fearfully, she stood there holding it shut with all her might. Bluebeard pounded on the door, crying out that she should open it. And when she did not do so, he tried to break it down. Oh, sister. Oh, sister. Aren't my brothers coming? She said to her sister, who was standing at the window looking out into the distance. She replied, I don't see anyone yet. Meanwhile, Bluebeard was breaking the door apart more and more, and the opening was almost large enough for him to get through. When three knights suddenly appeared before the castle, the sister cried from the window as loudly as she could, Help! Help! and waved to her brothers. They stormed upstairs to where they had heard their sisters cry for help. There they saw King Bluebeard, sword in hand, standing before the broken door, and they heard their sister screaming inside the room, immediately sensing what he was up to. They quickly ran their daggers into his breast and killed him. When the brothers learned what the godless king was going to do to their sisters, and that they had already killed so many women, they destroyed the castle that there was no stone remaining on one another. They took with them all the treasures and lived happily with their sisters, in their father's house. It felt odd to list Ernst as the author. Maybe it would be clearer as an edited translation of the original by Charles Perrault. Now, this is Charles Perrault. He is the father of fairy tales, it is said. And this was published and considered a fairy tale for children in Paris in 1697, La Barre Bleue, which is based on a real-life story of Giles de Rays. Not sure when he was born. They think it's 1405, and he died 1440. 
He was a 15th century pedophile and child murderer. Check this out. Gilles de Reyes fought alongside Joan of Arc against the English during the Hundred Years' War, for which he was appointed the Marshal of France. He was a knight and a lord who, after leaving military service, withdrew from public to pursue his own interests. These included an all-you-can-eat buffet while you watched his play that almost bankrupted him. He constructed the splendid Chapel of the Holy Innocents, where he was the priest and wore robes of his own design. The play consisted of more than 20,000 lines of verse with 140 speaking parts and 500 extras. 600 costumes were constructed, worn once, discarded, and constructed afresh for the next performance. Ray said he committed his first crimes against children between 1432 and 1433. It wasn't until he moved to Marchelon. I, I should just insert the slashing music from Psycho there. I just murdered these languages. My apologies. Where, according to his confessions, he killed a large but uncertain number of children after he raped them, decapitated, cut open, and then burned their bodies and clothes in his fireplace. The child snatching was done by his friends, who later testified against him. First documented case was of a 12-year-old boy, Jourdan, who was an apprentice to a furrier. They asked to use him to carry a message the child did not return. The accomplices said that the boy was pampered and dressed in fine clothing. A large meal, heavy drinking, particularly hippocras, which is a spiced wine, but they said it acted as a stimulant. Later, the boy was taken to an upper room to which only Reyes and his immediate circle were admitted. There, the child was confronted with the true nature of his situation. The shock of the child was the initial source of pleasure for Reyes. Occult practices during 1438, in which Reyes chose to initiate experiments, the first was done in the lower hall of his castle, he attempted to summon a demon named Baron. Reyes provided a contract. Reyes asked for money in his contract, when no demon showed up, after three tries, Reyes grew angry. Prelati, that's his demon whisperer, said Baron was angry and required an offering of parts of a child. Reyes provided these remnants in a glass vessel at a later evocation, but still no Baron, the demon. If this isn't shocking enough, Reyes kidnapped a cleric during his dispute with the church. Kill all the children you want, but kidnap a cleric? That started an investigation. This led to an arrest and charges of murder, sodomy, and heresy. Execution by hanging and burning, no less, with his two accomplices. He asked to be killed first. 
And at 11 o'clock, October 26, the brush at the base of the platform was set afire and Race was hanged. His body was cut down before burning and claimed by four ladies of high rank. His buddies got the same, except their bodies were reduced to ashes and strewn to the wind. Now, possibly we could take some hope that none of these children were injured in such a manner by the opinions in 1992 that Reis was a victim himself and that it was a land grab by noblemen of his time. There is a fictionalized biography called Giles de Reis or The Mouth of the Wolf. Alistair Crowley described Reis as, I quote, in almost every aspect, the male equivalent of Joan of Arc. Wasn't she burned for believing God talked to her? I leave you with this bizarre fact. His only child, a daughter named Marie, had a stone memorial erected at the site of his execution. Over the years, the structure came to be regarded as a holy altar under the protection of St. Anne. Generations of pregnant women flocked there to pray for an abundance of breast milk. It was destroyed during the revolution in the 18th century. Exactly how is this like Bluebeard? I don't get it. There was a decapitation of the wives, but I mean, this is so much more. We've got children, rape, all of it. Now, let's return to the German version that Damien just read us. It is almost a carbon copy to the original, but it doesn't include my favorite part, the moral. Are morals just a brainwashing technique for children? Brainwashing in the sense of conformity, but I digress. Moral. Curiosity, in spite of its appeal, often leads to great regret. In what reality is that true? To the displeasure of many a maiden, its enjoyment is short-lived. Are we talking about sex? Once satisfied, it ceases to exist and always costs dearly. We are talking about sex. The bit about curiosity, uh, I've had a taste of this, when trying to prove true my paranoia that a lover was cheating. And I went a-hunting, and I was right. But in regards to this story... Ignorance is bliss when your new husband is a serial killer. Ah, I'd rather know. So, is this the first known serial killer story? The word bluebeard, ah, I just can't talk. The word bluebeard means... Eh, The word bluebeard 
is now shorthand for serial killer. Well, that's news to me, and I'm addicted to true crime. Here, you're going to love this part. Another moral. Apply logic to this grim story, and you will ascertain that it took place many years ago. No husband of our age would be so terrible as to demand the impossible of his wife, nor would he be such a jealous malcontent. For whatever the color of her husband's beard, the wife of today will let him know who the master is. Okay, wait a minute. No husband of our age? I guess they haven't heard Andrew Tate's tirade. But wait. He's not a husband, right? As promised, now for even darker. Don Faree Ledoux. Once upon a time, there was a farmer who had a daughter who used to take his dinner to him in the fields. One day he said to her, So that you may find me, I will sprinkle bran along the way. You follow the bran and you will come to me. By chance, the old ogre passed that way, and seeing the bran said, This means something. So he took the bran and scattered it so it led to his own house. When the daughter set out to take her father his dinner, she followed the bran until she came along the ogre's house. When the ogre saw the young girl, he said, you may be my wife. She began to weep. When the father saw that his daughter did not appear, he went home in the evening and began to search for her. And not finding her, he asked God to give him a son or a daughter. A year after, he had a son whom called Don Friladou. When the child was three days old, it spoke and said, Have you made me a cloak? Now give me a little dog and the cloak, for I must look for my sister. So he set out and went to seek his sister. After a while he came to a plain where he saw a number of men and asked, Whose castle is that? The herdsmen replied, They belong to the ogre, who fears neither God nor the saints. Who fears Don Freladou, who is three days old and is on his way and gives his dog bread and says, Eat, my dog, and do not bark, for we have fine things to do. Afterwards, he saw a flock of sheep and asked, Whose are these sheep? And received the same answer from the herdsman. Then he arrived at the ogre's house and knocked, and his sister opened the door and saw the child. Who are you looking for? she said. I am looking for you, for I am your brother, and you must return to Mama. When the ogre heard that Don Friladoux was there, he went and hid himself upstairs. Don Friladoux asked his sister, Where's the ogre? Upstairs. Don Freladou said to his dog, Go upstairs and bark, and I will follow you. The dog went up and barked, and Don Freladou followed him up and killed the ogre. Then he took his sister and a quantity of money and then went home to his mother, and all were content. Well, folks, I could go no darker than a serial killing pedophile. 
But this story, I hope the visual cleaned your mental palate. It did mine. A three-day-old baby. How many syllables is in his name? Good job, Damien. I don't even want to attempt it. And I'm sure you're with me on that. Who comes up with this stuff? Well, I'll tell you, because that is my job. It was Thomas Frederick Crane and can be found in Italian Popular Tales, dated 1885. Should I? Here it goes. Okay, we've got the tragedy of the daughter being kidnapped. But the solution is to have another child? Uh-huh. That is a bold choice. And also time-consuming. Isn't the father worried about what's happening to his daughter, like, now? For really, though. <laughs> is that a family name or another poor decision by the father? A three-day-old child speaks. Incomplete sentences, no less. Marvelous. Add the baby Don which I looked up. It's a title of honor. They're farmers. Oh, well, I digress. The baby Don has a list of demands. He wants his cloak and a little dog. Not a big dog with the saddle. <laughs> Finally, someone is going to look for his sister, and it's a baby. As the story went on, I thought, this is one pushy three-day-old baby. We are left with the baby killed the ogre. Light on detail. I personally would have appreciated some hardcore three-day-old baby cage fighting. <laughs> uh, I leave you with this question. How did this baby get up the stairs? <laughs> We're going to be taking a break from our segment of Pinocchio, and we will return to it as soon as we're able. So stay tuned. We'll just think of Pinocchio in jail again. Now for our new segment, Mythical Moments in Mythology with Karen Ellinger. In Greek mythology, Pandora, derived from the all-endowed, all-gifted, or all-giving, was the first human woman created by Hephaestus on the instructions of Zeus. Her other name, inscribed against her figure on a white ground Kelix in the British Museum, is Anisodora, ancient Greek for she who sends up gifts, up implying from below, within the earth. Greek mythology alludes that men and women were not created at the same time. Men existed before the coming of women and degenerated over the ages. And the creation of the first woman, Pandora, was not a gift by the gods to man, but a punishment. 
As the myths in Hesoid's works are not arranged entirely in chronological order, it is difficult to pin down in which age of mankind Pandora was created. The story of Pandora, however, is intricately linked with that of the Titan Prometheus, whose tale begins at Mekon and may perhaps be placed sometime after the Silver Age. It was at this place that Prometheus cut up an ox and divided it into two portions. The smaller portion contained the meat of the animal wrapped up in the ox's stomach, while the larger one had the animal's bones covered by a layer of glistening fat. Prometheus succeeded in tricking the gods as they chose the bigger portion, while mankind was left with the edible meat. Enraged by Prometheus's trickery, Zeus withheld fire from man so that they could not cook the meat. This prompted Prometheus to steal fire from the gods, resulting in his punishment by being bound in chains and having an eagle eat his liver, which would grow back in the night. Prometheus was eventually freed by the hero Hercules. Zeus was not content with punishing Prometheus alone, but decided to punish mankind as well. He commands Hephaestus to fashion a maiden out of earth and water, the first woman, a beautiful evil whose descendants would torment the human race. The gods then showered her with gifts. Hesoid explains upon her origin in his text, Works and Days. Athena taught her needlework and weaving. Aphrodite shed grace upon her head and cruel longing and cares that weary the limbs. Hermes gave her a shameless mind and a deceitful nature. Hermes also gave her the power of speech, putting in her lies and crafty words. Athena then clothed her and next persuasion and the charities adorned her with necklaces and other finery. The Jorge adorned her with a garland crown. Finally, Hermes gave this woman the name Pandora. She was indeed a sight to behold, though a dangerous one. Both immortal gods and mortal men were seized with wonder and desire when gazing upon her. The female sex is descended from her. Pandora was then sent by Hermes to Epimetheus, the brother of Prometheus, as a gift. Although Prometheus had warned his brother not to accept any gift from Zeus, Epimetheus had forgotten about the warning and took Pandora as his wife. Zeus, pleased that his trap was working, gave Pandora a wedding gift of a beautiful container. In Hesoid's original version, the gift was actually a pithos, or jar. The mistranslation of pithos, a large storage jar as box, is usually attributed to the 16th century humanist Erasmus of Rotterdam when he translated Hesoid's tale of Pandora into Latin. Hesoid's pithos refers to a large storage jar, often half-buried in the ground, used for wine, oil, or grain. It can also refer to a funerary jar. Erasmus, however, translated pithos into the Latin word pisix, meaning box. The phrase, Pandora's box, has endured ever since. There was just one very important condition to Pandora owning the vessel. She was forbidden from opening the jar. But Pandora was gifted with curiosity as much as the other attributes given to her by the gods, and her mind became consumed with thoughts about what was kept inside. She could not understand why Zeus would give her a wedding gift but not allow her to see it. Eventually, she could think of nothing else but opening the box and unlocking its secrets. 
which is exactly what Zeus had planned. When Epimetheus left the room, Pandora slowly opened the lid off the box. Out poured a stream of ghostly creatures that consisted of disease, poverty, misery, sadness, death, and all the evils of the world. Pandora slammed the lid shut, but it was too late. The whole content had escaped except for one small but important thing that lay at the bottom, hope. In some versions of the myth, Pandora is said to have released hope and it fluttered from the box, touching the wounds created by the evil she had unleashed. Other variations of the myth say that hope remained inside the box, separating it from the evils and making it good in comparison. Even today, hope still remains in humanity in the darkest of times. As the British poet Alexander Pope once famously wrote, hope springs eternal in the human breast. In her later role as the source of all evil in the world, strong parallels can be drawn between Pandora and Eve in the Christian book of Genesis. Each were the first women in the world, and each played a major role in the world's transition from a place of ease and bountiful life to one of suffering and death. In both stories, the transition in the world is brought on as a revenge for a transgression against divine law. Both women were given one prohibition to maintain their idyllic lives, and both were drawn to violate the prohibition, bringing evil and suffering into the world and ending the paradise they lived in, not only for themselves, but for all mankind. However, one major difference remains. Eve was created by God to help Adam, whereas Pandora was created as a punishment from the gods. Some believe that the stories of Eve and Pandora have been retold over the centuries to more closely resemble each other, and this may be why they seem so similar in the present day. The End Men Degenerated Over Time Physically, Spiritually, or Mentally What does that mean? And how long were men around, we know Adam was busy with the animals, prior to women appearing? So fascinating. Karen, you did it again. And Prometheus stealing back the fire. That's always an amazing story to me, that he had the chutzpah to do that. Wow. This is completely different from what? I thought the story of Pandora was. I remember uh, the god, the sun god, wanted to sleep with her, and she said no, and he kept wanting to. Anyway, he wanted to sleep with her. She said no. He kept hitting on her. She kept going no. And then finally he said, I will give you the gift of sight. Then she slept with him for the gift of sight, but he didn't tell her that no one would believe her. So she had the gift of sight being the future, but no one would ever believe her. I think this is more fascinating, what Karen has told us, with this whole thing about Pandora being the first woman and paralleling Eve. But hey, what happened to our Lilith? If you didn't hear last week's episode, episode 26, Karen's coverage of Lilith was 
amazing. You must hear it. And that whole bit about it being a vessel as opposed to a box, the mistranslation of that, and because that one line you said about uh, that she'll bring it up from below. And hope. Why would hope even be in? I can't. I can't come up with the the downside of hope except. I know that I've stayed in situations longer than definitely was healthy for me with the hope that things would change, and they did not. So maybe that is the downside of hope. No peaking. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Even Darker. Please review and follow us. If you'd like to support us, do it. I'd love to hear your feedback, so leave a voice message if you are so inclined. I want to thank two of my most favorite men on this planet, Damian Drake and Jay Stinnett, for being our storytellers. And give an even darker welcome to Karen Ellinger. Even Darker is made with Anchor and can be found on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcast platforms.